0: We're taking an aside this week from the Sermon on the Mount to talk about the issue of forgiveness. Uh, We're calling this a a primer on forgiveness, which means that we're not going to cover all of the bases of forgiveness. There's a lot of ins and outs um, of forgiveness. Um, And you can think about it every one of us in this room has either been sinned against or we've sinned against someone. And so forgiveness is necessary. That's why we need to talk about it. It's important to Jesus, as we saw in Matthew 6, uh, part of the disciples' prayer on a day-to-day basis is asking God for forgiveness for the things that we do, our debts against him that we commit on a day-in and a day-out basis. But also there's a correspondence there. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then he goes on in verses 14 and 15 in Matthew 6 to say, if we don't forgive neither will our Father in heaven forgive us. If we do, He will forgive us. And we talked a little bit about that last week. But since it's so important to Jesus, this idea of forgiveness, uh, and this isn't the first, the the only time we're going to talk about forgiveness. Obviously, eventually we're going to get to Matthew 18, and we're going to talk about this issue again. But because this is such a a critical issue, and because it's so difficult uh, to understand, what does the Bible teach about forgiveness? How do we live that out I want you to hear uh, at least uh, the the core principles of biblical forgiveness multiple times. Uh, I I remember the first time uh, I heard what I'm about to share with you today, I was uh, taken aback. I actually disagreed uh, quite a bit with what was said. It took me a great deal of time to come to the uh, realization and the conviction of what I'm going to share with you today. And so I'm under no illusions today as I walk through this, that this is going to be Difficult. It's going to be difficult to hear. You're going to have a lot of questions. That's why this is a primer. It's getting you thinking. It's not going to answer every niggly detail, but it gets you thinking and it starts a conversation, a conversation that uh, can continue after the message is done. And you and I or the other elders and uh, yourselves can dialogue because the reality is forgiveness is messy. Forgiveness is messy because sin is messy. Forgiveness is messy because sin is messy. And therefore, we need to understand it. We need to understand it and have the key principles in mind. You think about it, we we need forgiveness, we need to understand forgiveness, because even as Jesus related, and even as he talks about in Matthew 18, we need to forgive on a daily basis, Uh, between husbands and wives, between uh, fellow members of the church, fellow members of the church sin against one another. In other interpersonal relationships, whether it's family or something else, we are sinning against one another on a constant basis, so we need to understand how to forgive. And it's critical, it's crucial, because even as Jesus said, if we get forgiveness wrong, or if we are unforgiving people, the consequences are eternal. The consequences are eternal. And so as we launch into this... um, there's a couple things I would say. Like I said, this is a primer, so we're not going to get everything. If you want to learn about this more and kind of just think about forgiveness more and have some good biblical teaching on it, of course, talk to me, talk to the elders. But uh, here's a couple books that you could look up if you needed to or wanted to. One is Unpacking Forgiveness by a guy named Chris Bronze. Unpacking Forgiveness by a guy named Chris Bronze. I've read through that, it's a good book. Uh, it forms a lot of the thinking, uh, at least as far as a source that goes into this. Here's another one that is uh, uh, I have on good authority. I haven't, I've started to read it. I haven't finished it yet, but I have on good authority that this is a good book. Is Pursuing Peace by Robert Jones. And if you're in the biblical counseling uh, class, you're going to actually hear a lot of this material again from Brian Sayers when he talks about this. Okay. But as we launch this morning, here's the key idea that uh, will drive a lot of what we're going to talk about. You see, in Ephesians 4, 31 through 32, or Colossians 3, 12 through 13, the principle is laid out, even as it is in the parable of the unforgiving servant, that God's forgiveness of us drives our forgiveness of others. We are to forgive as God has forgiven us. And the as is the important word there. We are to forgive as God as God has forgiven us. And so that'll pattern how we walk through the sermon this morning, because the way we're going to walk through it is we're going to start with God's forgiveness. Now, we talked about that to a degree last week, so we're going to review some ground there. God's forgiveness, then we're going to define forgiveness based on what God does, and then we're going to extend that in that definition and in that final part of uh, human forgiveness of offenders, what does that look like? So we're, start, we're doing what the scriptures tell us to do. If We're to forgive as God forgives. We need to understand how does he forgive first, and then we can understand what's the definition, the biblical definition of forgiveness, and then we can apply that in our relationships with each other. So uh, the main idea really of this morning is this, forgive the repentant, motivated by the Trinity's transcendent forgiveness of the repentant. I mean, in a nutshell, that's where we're going. Forgive the repentant, motivated by the Trinity's transcendent forgiveness of the repentant. So let's first talk about God's forgiveness of offenders. Now, we're going to, like I said, we're going to recover some of the ground we hit last week, but it's so essential that we get this right, because this is our model, this is our pattern for forgiveness. So we want to talk a little while about God's forgiveness of his offenders, those who have sinned against him, us. So let's start again, like we started last week in the Old Testament. Let's start in Leviticus 4. Leviticus 4. And I'm going to read that same passage that we did last week, and I'm going to draw a number of observations we've already drawn, but again, I'm going back so that we get this foundation right. Leviticus 4... 27. Leviticus four, twenty-seven. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that uh, by Yahweh's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed." And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and, shall, and kill the sin offering in the place of the burn offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burn offering and pour out all the rest of its blood on the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. And the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven." So what we see here, and we talked about this last week, is a process for if someone sins, and this is kind of a lesser case, right? We can sin intentionally or unintentionally. It's sin nonetheless. And that's what's going on here. Here's kind of the lesser case that someone's sinning unintentionally against God and his commandments. So what's the process look like that's outlined for the forgiveness of that person? First, the person has to be aware of what happened. That's how it starts, right? It starts with the person sins unintentionally, but they're not aware of it until either upon further reflection, uh, they understand, oh, uh, I sinned against God in that way. Or if someone else brings that to their attention. So once they're aware of this sin, then they initiate this process. They go to the temple, they offer the appropriate sacrifice, uh, as part of that, they lay their hands on that offering. Why is that significant? Because essentially what you're doing is you're confessing your sins over that uh, that animal, and you're uh, transferring them, so to speak. That animal is offered, and atonement is made. This is the idea of substitutionary atonement. The innocent animal is counted as having that sin, and the individual is now counted as righteous, and that's why God ends the whole sequence with saying, he shall be forgiven. He shall be forgiven. So what principles could we draw even from this passage? One, forgiveness presumes a real offense or sin has been done. Even if it's unintentional, even if it's not made aware of initially, forgiveness presumes that a real offense or sin has been done. And, And I'm using the term offense and sin synonymously uh this isn't just uh, the uh, um they're one in the same a sin is an offense right so if there's real sin there's a real offense uh is has been done then forgiveness is necessary here's a second thing forgiveness is a transaction between the offender the sinner and the one offended in this case god right so god is, has been offended god has been sinned against that's what sin is sin is not just doing naughty things sin is a slap in the face to the God of the universe. That is why it is so devastating, and that is why forgiveness is necessary. But you notice forgiveness is a transaction. The person becomes aware. Forgiveness is not granted until the individual comes, confesses their sins, offers the appropriate sacrifice that God himself has has said, this is what you need to do. And then God grants forgiveness. There's a transaction going on here between the offender and the one offended. Three, we already said this, the offender has to be aware of the sin in order to pursue forgiveness. The person isn't aware to begin with, but then they're made aware, and then they, insta- they go through this process that God has outlined. Four, the offender is the one who is benefited by the forgiveness. Who benefits from forgiveness? Well, God doesn't. Uh, I mean, God is gracious to forgive. Uh, God wants to forgive. But the person who's benefited here is the one who committed the offense. That's where the relational debt lies. And then fifth, even as we've seen here, between as for forgiveness between God and men, there needs to be an atonement. There needs to be a substitutionary atonement. There needs to be a transfer of guilt from the individual to the proper substitute, and there needs to be a transfer of blamelessness or righteousness from that substitute to the individual, which ultimately we know is in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone, the infinite Son of God, who alone lived the perfect, lived in flesh life, lived a righteous life. He alone can bear the infinite debt of sin, because an offense against an infinitely holy and glorious God deserves an infinite punishment. As finite beings, we cannot pay that. We need a infinitely worthy sacrifice in our place, which is Jesus Christ and him alone. But anyway, what we see in Leviticus points forward to that reality that is disclosed in the New Testament. But second, what we need to look at, so Leviticus 4 gives us some principles here, but let's turn next, and we did this last week as well, but I think it's helpful to re-retract some of this territory. Go to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. And here we've got David again talking about uh, forgiveness and asking forgiveness from God. And we can draw out a couple other principles from this psalm. Psalm 32. Psalm 32, a mass of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Yahweh counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Now, what we see here, and what's the focal point, uh, there's a couple things we can draw out. One, uh, David wasn't forgiven until he confessed his sin. We can say that for sure. Uh, David wasn't, wasn't forgiven until he had confessed his sin. He had, he had God's punishment on him, and even in a practical way. There was a relational break there, that until David confessed his sin and repented to the Lord, it was not forgiven. But when it was forgiven, what does that mean? Well, David uses some some, some synonymous terms here to describe what it means to have something forgiven. The sin is covered. Uh, iniquity is not counted. This is, this is kind of the accounting language that often goes with forgiveness in the scriptures. You see, you can't erase a, an event once it's happened. You can't erase an event once it happened. Forgiveness doesn't change a past event. It can't. It's happened. What's done is done. So what does forgiveness actually address? Well, even in Psalm 32, it shows that what's being addressed is not the event itself. That's there. Fixed but the guilt from that event, the guilt from that event. It's not the fact that the the sin is just gone all of a sudden. It's that that, that there's pardon, that the sin is not counted against that person. Uh, It's not accounted against that person. It was committed, but it's not counted against that person. There's a release from that debt, so to speak, to use that language. So That's what we see from Psalm 32. You might say, okay, well, uh, what else can we say about our forgiveness with God? That's why we're here. We're trying to understand what does it look like for man to be forgiven by God? Because that's the pattern to an extent uh, of how we should forgive one another. Well, even more, we can say a little bit more. Turn to the New Testament now. Turn to Acts. Turn to Acts 2. So we're just gathering observations and facts from the scriptures at large, and then we're pulling them all together. In Acts 2, uh, 38. Acts 2, 38. And what has happened is uh, we've got Pentecost here, and um, Peter is preaching the gospel. He's preaching about the Messiah. And then uh, we get a question, right, from the audience. Brothers, what shall we do? They realize their offense. They realize their grave offense. They've uh, killed the Messiah. What do you do? Verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So they recognize their offense. How do they get forgiveness? Repentance. We've been talking a lot about repentance as we've gone through Matthew. What is it? It's, it's, not, it's, it's not deeds in and of itself. It's an allegiance change. It's an allegiance change. In other words, you're changing your allegiance from sin and self. You're recognizing that it's wrong, but then you're turning in faith and entrusting yourself to Christ as the the sufficient atonement alone for sin. You're trusting him alone, and then God grants forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness are two sides of the same coin. Repentance is the turning from. Faith is the turning to. They're, They're happening simultaneously here. And Peter just shorthand it. He just shorthands it right here and says, uh, repent and be baptized. Repent and identify with Christ. Repent and identify with Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But what that tells us is that there is, without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness of sins. If you're not going to change allegiance from sin and self to God and faith, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so we talked about even last week, this idea of, uh, that happens initially for a disciple at conversion. All right. All our, we, we are aware, at least to an extent of all of our past sins at the point of conversion. And we, we confess those confession and repentance are different. They're distinct confession acknowledges that my sins are wrong, that I have done uh, God wrong, that I have mocked the holy and infinite God with my sin. I've defamed him. I've dishonored him. That's confession. Uh, and we do that at, at, at conversion. We repent. We say, my intention is to turn from those things and to follow you, Lord Christ, for the rest of my days. But then we also talked about what Jesus talks about in the Lord's Prayer is uh, that happens. We're forgiven. We are the, the word of forgiveness is pronounced to us in the gospel at our conversion. And yet, even as disciples, we sin. And we talked about this last week, how Jesus, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, assumes that a disciple is, uh, on a day-by-day basis, commits offense, incurs debt with God. Uh, and so uh, there's sort of a daily aspect of rep- uh, forgiveness, where now I become aware, remember Leviticus 4, I need to become aware of my sin I'm now aware of my sin. And since forgiveness is a transaction, I I come to God and say, I have now, but you were aware of this sin all along, God. You knew Christ paid for it at the cross. I just became aware of it. I want to repent of that. I want to turn from that. Would you forgive me on the basis of Christ's sacrifice? And so there's this daily reality as a Christian where we're clearing accounts, so to speak, based on Christ's sacrifice alone, on the cross. And we know that the final word, God God pronounces his word of forgiveness in principle through the gospel, through the pages of scripture, through the gospel proclaimed to us. We know that for the one who's in Christ, who's joined with Christ in faith, that word of forgiveness is uh, is pronounced. And yet the full final public pronouncement of that forgiveness by God verbally is going to happen at the judgment seat. You see, what happens when one places their faith in Christ, they're joined with Christ, but Christ himself is the judge at the judgment seat. And since you know the judge, the judge slips you a piece of paper and says, here's what my verdict is going to be at the judgment seat. And at that judgment seat, he says, in a full final proclaiming way, I forgive you, you are righteous. Enter into the joy of your master. If you're in Christ alone, because only his atonement can secure that for you. And, and you might say, well, wait a minute, and we talked about this last week, does that mean I have to catch every little sin that I do? Because there's a lot of sins, I just don't, I, I can't catch them, I don't remember them. Well, that's what Psalm 19, 12 to 13, we won't turn there, but talks about, the psalmist says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. So even as we pray and confess to the Lord, we, we say, you know, I know there are things that I've done that have offended you that I don't even know about, would you forgive those? And we are forgiven on the basis of Christ. Here's the other aspect uh, of forgiveness. So we, we, we we're kind of pulling all these pieces together. Here's one more aspect of forgiveness. Turn turn to Second Corinthians. Turn to Second Corinthians five. Second Corinthians five. Seventeen through twenty-one. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21. through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here you pull together a lot of things going on with forgiveness. Uh, But here's the key point I want to draw out. Forgiveness, not counting our trespasses against us, is for the purpose of reconciliation. In other words, God doesn't just say, you're forgiven, now shoo, get out of my sight in case you muddy it up again. That's not how God acts. God wants reconciliation. God wants the restoration of relationship. Just as he had the design at the very beginning with Adam and Eve, that intimacy of relationship and communion, forgiveness is the foundation, the inseparable foundation for that reconciliation. And we see that language here. We, uh, and it's, again, based between us and God, that's based on the atonement of Jesus Christ. That, see that in verse 21. Uh, Christ was counted as sin, and then his righteousness is counted to us. And here's the thing. when we, we and I want to just emphasize this. When that word of forgiveness in the gospel is pronounced to us, we should be joyful people. We should be joyful people. Because if you understand the record of debt, Colossians two thirteen through 14, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and he nailed it to the cross, he dealt with it at the cross, and you hear that word of it's canceled, it's forgiven, you should be so joyful. You should be so joyful um, because of what our great God has done for us in Christ. And if you're not in Christ this morning, you don't know him, and you, you are weighed down by the guilt and the acknowledgement that I'm a sinner against the holy God, you do not have to leave this room without experiencing gospel joy because of what Christ has done on the cross if you will entrust yourself to him. But there is one other thing we could, should say about God's forgiveness before we leave this, even though God does forgive us, he doesn't count our sins against us anymore. In fact, he counts us with the righteousness of Christ. If we're in him, that doesn't mean that all consequences are eliminated. That doesn't mean that all consequences are eliminated. Classic example of this was David and Bathsheba in uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So David commits adultery with Bathsheba, he murders Uriah, and so he, he, he has relational offense against these people. But not only that, it's offense against God. You see, anytime we commit a relational offense to one another, actually the greater offense, and David says this in Psalm 51, the greater offense against God himself, because we've sinned against an image bearer. We dishonor an image bearer of God, we've dishonored God himself. But then what happens is David, and he gets confronted. So the sin begets, he knows his sin, but Nathan the prophet comes in 2 Samuel 12, and he says, hey, you're the man. And he's like, you're right, I am the man. I confess, I repent. Uh, and, and Nathan says, on behalf of God, God has put away this sin also. He says that, he's forgiven. But then what happens? The child that Bathsheba was bearing, David's child, dies as a consequence. And in fact, you can trace to that sin, really the split of the whole Israelite kingdom into northern and, uh, north and south, the consequences from that sin, though they were forgiven by God, there were still consequences. There were still consequences. Okay, so we've pulled a lot of kind of observations together about God's forgiveness of us, which now leads us to be- being able to define forgiveness in a biblical way. And I've put this on your, your notes there because it's so, uh, so essential to have this. So we pull all these facts together into a definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. You say that again, a commitment by the offended, this is what forgiveness is, a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. And that's from Chris Bronze in his book, and I think it's a pretty really good, concise definition. But let's walk through this. Here's the reality. Forgiveness is not fundamentally an emotion. Forgiveness is not fundamentally emotion. Now, emotions are involved, just like love. Uh, love uh, there's emotions involved in love, but at a foundational level, love is a commitment to do what's best for someone else. Both are true, but it's true for forgiveness too, that, that forgiveness is not fundamentally an emotion. It's a commitment. It's a commitment. What is the commitment? Well, that's why I put down these four kind of commitments of forgiveness. This is from modified from another book uh, called The Peacemaker, but from Ken Sandy. Uh, But these are really helpful. What are you saying when you forgive someone? What are you saying when you forgive someone? First, you're saying, "I won't dwell on the offense. I won't dwell on the offense." Now that's kind of an internal thing, right? Uh, When you, you you know how it goes. When you think back to an offense and you start playing the, the, the reel, right? The, the, the video reel in your mind. You replay that in your mind. Now, I would make this, I'll go ahead and say this right now. I'll make a distinction between dwelling on something and forgetting something. The reality is, contrary to popular opinion, forgiveness does not mean forgetting. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting. God doesn't forget our sins in the purest sense of that. How could he? He's omniscient. What's happened, happened. He knows it. Yet he does speak of forgetting our sins in this sense. He's not going to count them against us. You guys know that hurt is sometimes so deep and and terrible in a relationship that sometimes you're just kind of walking through life and all of a sudden it pops up in your mind. And you've just thought about it, right? You've just remembered that. But here's what you do at that moment. You've got a decision. As soon as that offense comes up in your mind, and if you've, you've claimed to forgive that other person, you've got one of two things. You can let the videotape start rolling, which is dwelling on it, which you're not supposed to do. Or you can start to speak truth to that reality and say, no, God has forgiven me. I have forgiven that person. We're still working through that. I'm not going to dwell on it. I committed to that. And I'm, by God's grace, by his empowerment through the Holy Spirit, I will not dwell, will not dwell on the offense." Second commitment you're making, I will not bring up the offense against, uh, uh, again to use it against you. We do this, don't we? As humans, we naturally do this. We're like We get into the next fight. Uh, we we got to reconcile in one fight. We get to the next fight or issue in a relationship, and we, br- we come with ammo. We come with past ammo to bring up and say, well, yeah, but remember when you did this. But forgiveness says, no, I'm not going to bring it up to use it against you in the future. Third, I will not talk about it with others. I will not talk about the offense with others. Uh, that's, that's gossip, right? Uh, and you're trying to uh, bring others in. You're trying to get them on your side. You know, oh, didn't this person do something so bad to me? And you're trying to, it's it's kind of a, a third party way of doing what number two is talking about in commitment, but you don't talk about it with others. Now, there might be an appropriate place where hey, me and, me and so-and-so are trying to work through this, and we're having difficulties. Can you help us out? That's a little bit different. But when you're trying to use it in a, in a way to, to downplay or belittle the other person, that's not what forgiveness does. And four, I am committed to pursuing appropriate relational reconciliation. You see, like, like God's forgiveness, the foundation of that reconciliation is forgiveness, but he's pursuing relational reconciliation. Now, I say appropriate intentionally. Uh, I am committed to pursuing appropriate relational reconciliation. Sometimes, depending on the nature of the sin, things just can't go back to the way they used to be. Things just can't go back to the way they used to be because it goes back to that idea of consequences. And yet there's a pursuit. There's a pursuit to be reconciled with that person. So forgiveness is a commitment. It's by the offended who grants forgiveness? The offended the offended person grants it to the, uh, the offender. The offended person grants it to the offender. It's a gracious thing. It's not something they're obligated to do in, a, in that sense. It's a gracious thing. It's a gracious thing, but it's to the repentant It's to the repentance. Here's another thing that we need to dispel about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not automatic. Forgiveness is not automatic. It is a transaction conditioned on confession and repentance. Turn in your Bibles briefly to Luke 17. Luke 17, in verse 3. Luke 17, verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother, so a fellow disciple, sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent... You must forgive him, just like God doesn't forgive unless you repent. We should not forgive unless someone repents. It's a transaction. It's a two-way street. Now I'll, I'll, I'll describe what I mean and I don't mean by that. So bear with me for a second. It's a two-way street. You've got an offend uh, uh, one offended, and you've got an offender. Uh, the one the offender is, or the one who offended, excuse me, is the only one who can grant forgiveness but it's not going to help the one offended or the, the offender to grant that forgiveness before they recognize their own sin, confess it and repent of it. In other words, if you clear the debt too quickly without them understanding and repenting, actually you're only hurting them. They need to understand what they have done against you, what they've done, not only against you, but against God. And they need to, they need to recognize that and they need to pursue reconciliation. Forgiveness is not automatic. Now, here's what is. Here's where the gracious part comes in. You should always be willing to forgive someone. In other words, as a Christian, because I understand how much God has forgiven me, my hand is always outstretched. My hand is open. If if you repent, I'm ready. I want to forgive you. I, I, I want to forgive you. That offer of forgiveness is always there, but the transaction piece of forgiveness is not there until the other person repents. And related to that, forgiveness is for the offender, not for the one offended. It's not for me. If someone offends me, someone offends me, sins against me, I don't forgive that person for my sake because I'm not the one with the relational debt. I'm not the one with the problem. Now, we understand that relationships are messy. There's probably two sides to this. But in the purest sense, right, um, if someone's offended me, the the benefit of forgiveness is for that person. It's not for me. It goes against this therapeutic notion that in order to move on, I must forgive. Well, it's not about you. It's about the other person. Now, we'll talk in a minute about uh, this idea. Well, wait a minute. What about bitterness? All that. We're We're getting there right? We're getting there. But forgiveness is for the offender, not the one offended. Forgiveness is for the purpose of reconciliation. We've said this, that when you forgive someone, it's not like, all right, I've forgiven them. I'm never going to talk to that person ever again. Uh, I'm never going to do that. No, because forgiveness, just like God's forgiveness of us, pursues the relationship in all appropriate ways, in all appropriate ways. Now, here's the reality, and you guys know this. Reconciliation and rebuilding of trust when real deep offense has happened takes time and hard work. It takes time and hard work, it's a process. It's a process, and sometimes it's a process that we need to invite the fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are wise and can give biblical counsel. We need to invite them into our lives to say, hey, we're, we're working at this, we're trying at this, but we're still struggling. Would you help us? That's, that's leaning into the body of Christ to help pursue the reconciliation and what that looks like. So just to encapsulate This definition of forgiveness means forgiveness is not fundamentally an emotion. It's a commitment. Forgiveness is not automatic. It's transaction conditioned on confession and repentance. Luke 17 backs us up on that. Forgiveness is for the offender, not the one offended. It's not therapeutic. Forgiveness is for the purpose of reconciliation. And forgiveness does not mean forgetting. Okay? And where did all that come from? It came from that's what God's forgiveness of us looks like. It's what God's forgiveness of us looks like, so therefore, the implication is that should pattern our forgiveness of others. Now we are like, okay, I kind of sort of get it, um, but I'm struggling. And believe me, uh, I, I struggled with this the first time I heard it. So what does this look like? So that moves us into our third and final kind of stage of this. What is the human forgiveness, our forgiveness of offenders, our forgiveness of those who have sinned against us, look like? Well, the way I've kind of, uh, I think what the the way to help us through this is to ask some diagnostic questions. So as we think about applying this definition to um, situations, and I get it, these situations get messy. There's a lot of hurt. So there's a lot of untangling to do in all of this. But here's some questions that would help as we think about uh, the forgiveness uh, transaction between humans. Here's a first question we could ask. One, is there actual sin? Is there actual sin? Sometimes I get annoyed, but that doesn't mean there was sin against me, does it? Right? Is there actual sin involved? If there's not actual sin and I'm just getting annoyed, then it's probably my fault, right? Uh, And I need just to get over it. Um, so you gotta you gotta have two separate categories. Is there actual sin involved, or am I just getting annoyed? Is there actual sin? Okay. Here's a second question. This might seem a little odd based on what I've said so far. Is the offense uh, one you should just overlook? Is the offense just one you should overlook? Now I didn't say forgive. I said overlook. Uh, and I've got pre- biblical precedent for this. Turn to Proverbs. Turn to Proverbs, a rich wealth of how to deal with relationships in general. Proverbs twelve. Proverbs twelve sixteen. Proverbs twelve sixteen. The vexation of a fool is known at once but the prudent ignores an insult, right? Sometimes people insult us and there's a real offense there, so it's real sin. And yet uh, sometimes the scripture just says, just overlook it, ignore it, drop it. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, Turn over to uh, Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So there's a real offense given here, and yet, uh, apparently it doesn't rise to the level of uh, needing to do anything more with it, just overlook it. Here's how the New Testament talks about that. First Peter, first Peter four First Peter four and verse seven. 1 Peter 4 and verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, some offenses, they're real offenses, but sometimes they're just so small that it's like, what can I do? I can overlook it. I can ignore it. I can let love cover it. So there is a category for that. I'm not talking about every niggly little thing in a relationship. Sometimes someone does sin against me, but it's a small way and it's like, you know what? It's gonna harm more than help to deal with it. Let's just overlook it and move on. So is there actual sin? Is it an offense you can just overlook or should just overlook, just drop it in other words? But we know that there are definitely offenses where we can't just overlook it. We can't just drop it. And so here we ask some more diagnostic questions. Is the person aware of their offense, their sin? Uh, Think back to Leviticus 4, right? And that idea of it's a transaction. Well, you can't actually do this transaction and pursue reconciliation until the person is aware of the sin. And so sometimes that's you approaching someone and say, you know, when you said this or when you did this, that was wrong and that really hurt. That really, uh, that really offended me. And I'm not saying just annoyed me. I'm saying, no, there was real sin done here. This, this is an issue and we need to talk about it. Um, And so you, you, you gotta, uh, but that person may not even be aware, right? Uh, Many times I'm walking through life uh, with Ashley, right? And I, uh, I'm, I'm not as aware as I should be. I get it, right? And she needs to tell me Hey, you know, what you did right there, that was really hurtful, and that was really inconsiderate, and that was not kind. And I need to know that. And then when she brings it my attention, now I'm in a position to say, "You're right, what I did was wrong. Uh, I'm pursuing not doing that again in the future. Would you forgive me? And then she can enact that transaction with me, and we can have a reconciled relationship. And here's the thing. Uh, Matthew 7, Jesus talks about the speck in your eye and the log in your own eye. So before you go and confront someone, look over yourself, right? Look over what, uh, in what way was I part of it? Usually in a a relational difficulty, there's a two-sided, there's a two-sided thing going on there. What was my part? What was the other person's part? But when you've examined yourself, there is a place for confronting others, Okay, so, is the person aware of their offense, their sin? Now, here's the the key question: Is the person repentant? Is the person repentant? So, maybe they're aware of their sin, but they're not. They're not repentant. They don't, they don't see that what they did was wrong. They don't really. Uh, they they're not trying to change. Uh, they're not trying to pursue a different direction. Uh, they're not willing to come to you and, 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 and admit they're wrong and to be repentant. If the person's not repentant, don't forgive them until they confess, repent, and seek reconciliation. Why? Why would I say that? Because repentance is not about the one offended, it's about the offender. And you short-circuit the process of what would be good for them, right? If they understand that there's something between me and that person but they understand they're not willing to deal with it, uh, that you're short-circuiting the process, they're not recognizing their guilt, their sin, and so if you just say, well, I forgive you, it's not a big deal, then you're not allowing them to see the gravity of their sin and deal with it, which is their best good. So that's why I say that. Now, you should always be ready to forgive. Like we said, and we'll talk about this, um, uh, we'll give some scripture here to talk about that reality. What What if someone's not repentant, but you should always be ready, you should always be ready if the person is repentant, yes, forgive and seek reconciliation. Okay, but what if they are aware they're unrepentant and years go by? Or what if the person dies and there was no reconciliation? How in the world do you ha- not have transacted that, for, that, that, that transaction of forgiveness? What do you do? What do you do? Is that just going to make you bitter? And the answer is biblically, no. You can have a you can have a situation where you haven't transacted that that forgiveness with that person. You can't have reconciliation with them, and yet you don't have to be bitter. How do I know that? Romans twelve, Romans twelve. Really helpful passage in thinking um, through this. Romans twelve. Um, Romans 12.1, Paul makes this big switch between, here's the gospel in chapters 1 through 11, and verse, in chapter 12, he st- starts laying out the implications of the gospel. And part of that we see at the end of Romans 12. Romans 12.17. 12, uh, listen to this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, or leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what do you do if someone has offended you, real sin against you, even hurtful things, even deeply hurtful things, and they're not repentant, what do you do? Well, this passage helps us, doesn't it? One, and this is from Chris Bronze in his book, and this is just a really succinct way of putting it, resolve not to take revenge. That's the first thing you do, resolve not to take revenge. Usually when, when we... When we when we, someone's unrepentant, they've got an offense, and they, they're not doing anything with it, and we feel like, what do I do? What do I do? I just, I'm struggling here, right? And we start to become bitter. Really, it's because we want to take justice into our own hands. We want to take justice into our own hands. We want to make sure that that person knows how hard it was. We want to make sure uh, that we can deal with the justice issue that's going on there, And that's why we're tempted to take revenge, but we're to resolve not to take revenge. And in fact, we're to do the opposite. This comports exactly what Jesus has been saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Proactively show love. Even to someone who has done you great and grievous wrong, proactively and appropriately seek steps to show love. What is love? Love does what's best for someone else at great cost to themselves. And then third, leave room for the wrath of God. Leave room for the wrath of God. See, this is all justice language, right? Resolve not to take revenge, Proactively show love, and leave room for the wrath of God. In other words, there may be real offense that was never cleared up or is not yet currently being cleared up between you and another. You don't have to take justice into your own hands. And in fact, God will. God will deal with the justice issue. God will deal with the justice issue, which frees you up so that you don't have to be bitter, but you can trust that the just God of the universe will deal with the matter in his way and his timing. And Finally, we might say this, right? So just, just to recap those three principles from Romans 12. Resolve not to take revenge, proactively show love, leave room for the wrath of God. And if you're doing those things, if you're in the place that Romans 12 is talking about that, even if the, you haven't been able to forgive the other person, you're not a bitter person. You can't be and practice what's talking about at the end of Romans 12. And finally, we could ask this question. What if you forgive? what if you forgive, right? So the person's repentant, they, they come to you, they confess their iniquity, uh, you, you, uh, you do that. What, what if you forgive? Well, there may still be consequences. Remember, there were still consequences for David, weren't there? Uh, so think about this. Uh, unfortunately, we hear of pastors falling into sin, don't we? And they disqualify themselves from ministry. Now you hear also of those, some of those pastors, they're genuinely repentant, They're genuinely repentant, and they ask forgiveness from their congregation, and their congregation forgives them. Does that mean they get to go back into the pulpit? No. No, it does not. There are still consequences. Forgiveness doesn't automatically release uh, all consequences. Think of another situation. Let's suppose that someone murders uh, your child. God forbid, right? God forbid this would happen. Yet we know our dark world that, that we live in. And let's suppose the murderer was repentant. And you hear of cases like this where genuinely came to know the Lord, genuinely repented of his sin. Does that mean he gets out of his life sentence? No. No, it doesn't. Because there's another dynamic going on there. God has enabled the justice system to warn others from committing the same iniquity. Just because there's forgiveness, that doesn't mean that all consequences go away. Some cases it does. Some cases it can work that way. But There are some cases where it can't. So as we finish, that's a lot. That's a primer on forgiveness. I hope you're thinking, and I hope some of you I know have difficulties. You're struggling, and that's okay. It's okay because, like I said, when I first encountered this, this was difficult for me, and yet I'm convinced this is what Scripture teaches, and I'm convinced if we apply the Scriptures in this way, it will help our relationships. So ask questions, ask me questions, work through the nitty-gritty issues. Well, what if this happens? And what if yeah, ask those questions. Let's talk them through. But here's here's a few implications we can end with. Some questions to ask yourself. First. First I would actually say this, remember the gospel. What fuels this? You can't do this. You can't do this Unless you're empowered by the Holy Spirit to enable you to do so. Unless you understand how much God has forgiven you, 10,000 talents at the beginning, we talked about that, that's 200,000 years' wages. It's 200,000 years' wages. 100 denarii is 100 days' wages. Both are significant, but one's way more significant, right? What fuels our forgiveness? It is God's forgiveness of us. When you meditate on how much you have been forgiven, that fuels, empowered by the Holy Spirit, your forgiveness of others. So remember the gospel. It's the only way you can forgive in this way. Who do you need to forgive? That would be one question to ask. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? Someone's asked you, they've confessed, they've asked for forgiveness, and you're struggling. Who do you need to forgive? On the flip side, who do you need to ask forgiveness from? Who do you need to ask forgiveness from? not just glossing over an offense, but saying, no, that was a real offense against you. And using specific language. Don't just say, oh, I'm sorry for something I may have kind of done. No, co- coming with specific language, I offended you in this, this, and this way. Would you forgive me? Who do you need to ask forgiveness from? Who do you need to be willing to forgive? Who do you need to be willing to forgive? Maybe are someone who uh, hasn't confessed their sin, hasn't uh, repented, You still need a willingness to forgive, right? Romans 12, the end there. You still need a willingness to forgive. Who do you need to be willing to forgive? The hand is outstretched if they reach out and grab it. And who do you need to ask help from to help you work through forgiveness? Like I said, forgiveness situations are messy. It's hard to, our minds aren't right often. It's hard to think through all the messiness of sin and what does forgiveness and repentance look like. Lean into the local church. Lean into the local church. Talk to Steve, talk to Jim, talk to myself. Work through the issues. Work through the issues so that you can reach reconciliation. Forgive the repentant, motivated by the Trinity's transcendent forgiveness of the repentant. Let's pray. Lord, this is tough stuff, and we need your help. Uh, we need your help, and yet we believe in the sufficiency of the scriptures. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit that you have given us at work in our lives. Lord, I pray that if there are any here who don't, uh, they haven't asked forgiveness from you uh, based on what is going on what, what you have done, um, Christ, on the cross and in the resurrection, I pray that there would be forgiveness asked of you today, and that people would know the joy of forgiveness in the gospel. And Lord, I pray that that same reality for those of us who are in Christ would fuel us to be forgiving in our relationships. Help us to identify where we have offended others in a truly sinful way and where we need to deal with those things and give us the grace, the courage to deal with them. And Lord, to pursue reconciliation. Lord, I pray that you would uh, bless us as we pursue these things for your honor, for your glory, and listening to your instruction that you give us from your word.